Time for our second hour roundtable on America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. More talking truth about America. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I'm so glad you've tuned in tonight. I meant to tell you at the beginning that I'm actually doing this show from California. We are in the studio in Oxnard, California, um, which I really appreciate Salem helping out getting this all set up. I want to give specific thanks to Jim Bartow and Greg Lindemood, who's in my ear from the uh, Irving studio. And also Kevin Campbell is here helping with the boards, uh, making it possible for me to do this show while we're taking a little family vacation. Okay, so the top of the second hour, since I don't have a round table, I'll ask myself the question, what's up with the Google thing? And let me tell you the answer to that. If you've been following this Google story at all, first of all, if you haven't, if you think it doesn't matter to you, it really, really does. Google got a lot of attention this week uh, because they fired an engineer named Dan. His name is Demore. I, th- I can't remember his last name. Anyway, they fired a guy um, who was an engineer there, James Demore, D-A-M-O-R-E. And they fired him because he wrote a memo that first circulated internally at Google and then got released out to the public and he was fired by the president of Google, or the president concurred in his firing, uh, and that president uh, made a statement that essentially said that this guy's statements were not consistent with the values of Google. And I just want to tell you what the guy actually said in his memo that gets you fired at Google. They have data, of course, at Google about you know the percentage of people in their workforce who are various backgrounds, ethnicity and race and all that. So they have this, this data. And they just a quick share with you, I'll tell you, that Google has uh, overall in its workforce of 72,000 people, 31% women. But in the, and so 31%, not even close to half and half. Uh, and then the, in the tech jobs that are, you know, the higher, I guess, more complicated jobs, tech jobs, only 20% of their workforce is women. And so they also have overall in Google's entire workforce, 72,000 people, only 2% black. And in the tech jobs, only 1% black. And then back to overall, Hispanic 4%. In tech world, 3%. So the basic thing is Google has a gross um, you know, concern, or they have a concern, they have a gross underrepresentation of women, blacks, and Hispanics in their overall workforce, and in particular in the tech jobs. So this guy who is an engineer, got great evaluations, doing well, blah, blah, he suggested in a 10-page, I'm telling you folks, it's like a college paper he wrote a 10-page thing essentially saying that perhaps some of the disparities in their employment ranks are due to inherent differences between men and women and not due to intentional discrimination. Okay, if that is not, to quote my best friend from law school, a PGO, a pointed glimpse into the obvious, I mean, really, it's a PGO, yes, men and women are different, This should be known to every human being, but apparently not at Google. So he actually went through, in addition to saying perhaps some of the things that we consider to be probably the outcome of discrimination are really just the outcome of differences in men and women. He goes through and he describes some of those, Um, you know, difference in uh, personalities and interest in things. He's trying to make an argument that perhaps men and women are different, which is you know, against the ethos of the wacko liberal left mindset, which just says men and women are exactly the same. But to be specific, as I mentioned in the first segment of the show tonight, he talked about tribalism, that he said, why don't we stop treating people as the assigned category, just treat them as individuals? 
treat them as individuals, what they want to do, what they're interested in, instead of all this tribal stuff. He also is just basically saying there's possibly an unbiased reason for the gender gap in tech. And he runs through things like they're biologically different. Um, he runs through people having personality differences. You know, women tend to be more talkative. Who knew? Um, but, I mean, there's all sorts of things that are just common sense. And he was, you know, the guy's a leftist, by the way. He's kind of a liberal. But he's just basically saying we spend so much time at Google you know, assessing and examining and, you know, giving priority to and special classes and sensitivity training. Isn't it possible that some of the gender gap is due to normal things? You know, he says as non-discriminatory ways, he suggests he gives them a whole list of non-discriminatory ways to reduce the gender gap. He's not saying don't hire women. He's not saying they're not smart enough. He's not saying they're not cut out to be uh, tech people or other have other advanced jobs. He's running through a bunch of, I mean, the guy, it's like a research paper he wrote. He talks about confirmation bias, how we, people, and this is a well-known psychological thing, confirmation bias, that, that it, everybody has biases, and we, we tend to see things through the lens of what we already believe. And, but, and he just, he's talking about, um, he's saying that differences between men and women are interpreted as oppression, and, and that we should stop doing that. It's okay if men and women aren't exactly the same. Well, the left went wild. He got fired by, by, uh, from Google, and he's actually written up, in addition to his memo being public, he's got a great piece in the Wall Street Journal, Why I Was Fired by Google. He's basically saying, I challenge the liberal assumption that all outcome differences are based on differential treatment and that all people are inherently the same. He's saying maybe there's actually some biological disparity between men and women. So this guy doesn't have a job. He might have a lawsuit on his hand, his hand because now he's talking about it more. He's saying that, that Google and other left-wing things in, are in you know, those similar companies, it's like a cult. You can't say anything someone else doesn't like. Folks, we'll talk about more after the break. Coming up, we have an interview with another person, changing the subject entirely, Peter Cove, author of Poor No More. Great interview, great book. You don't want to miss it. Come right back after our break. Could you lose your career because of your faith? Could your pastor be sued because of his sermons? Can students and teachers be punished because of what they believe about God? Can the government or even your employer force you to violate your beliefs? Get the answers and, if necessary, legal protection from First Liberty Institute. First Liberty is the nation's largest legal organization dedicated exclusively to restoring religious freedom in America. In fact, First Liberty's nationwide network of top attorneys win over 90% of their cases. They've won at the Supreme Court all the way down to local schools. Visit FirstLiberty.org to learn more about how First Liberty is protecting religious freedom for all Americans in the workplace, public schools, your church, the military, and more. That's FirstLiberty.org. If you want hope for religious freedom and a free listing of your rights, go to FirstLiberty.org now. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. 
They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are nearly a half million heritage members and supporters in America. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates from Heritage Foundation on the fight for conservative solutions to America's challenges. Plus, you'll receive exclusive invitations to conservative events where you live. So join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. Attention Ronald Reagan fans. What is the one item most sought after by Americans who love the Gipper? It's Young America's Foundation's Reagan Ranch Calendar. Young America's Foundation is the leading youth outreach organization dedicated to ensuring that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom, a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values. New audiences of young people across the country are introduced to conservative ideas through Young America's Foundation's programs, including the Reagan Ranch Program. The Reagan Ranch calendar contains spectacular images of the Gipper enjoying his beautiful 688-acre ranch, the Western White House. For a limited time, the calendar is free. Even shipping is free. To receive your beautiful Reagan Ranch calendar from Young America's Foundation, call 800-USA-1776 and mention the phrase Reagan Gift. Again, the number is 1-800-USA-1776 and Reagan Gift is the code. Learn more about Young America's Foundation at www.yaf.org. That's yaf.org. America faces unprecedented threats to our national security. The Center for Security Policy, based in Washington, D.C., is a national leader focused on the organization, management, and direction of public policy coalitions to promote U.S. national security. The Center is a special forces in the war of ideas dedicated to identifying opportunities and challenges likely to affect American security and acting promptly to ensure that they are the subject of focused national examination and effective action. The Center enlists support from executive branch officials, key legislators, and other public policy organizations and brings these teams together to develop and shape policies that will keep America safe. Check out centerforsecuritypolicy.org for the latest news and developments brought to you by America's leading security experts. Becoming and remaining informed is one of the best ways every citizen can be a part of the mission to keep America safe. That's centerforsecuritypolicy.org. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. And as I mentioned before our break, we have a fabulous guest joining us tonight. He's the author of a book called Poor No More, Rethinking Dependency and the War on Poverty. This is a relatively new book. It came out this year. And the author, Peter Cove, is with us tonight. In addition to having written that book, he's also the founder in 1984 of an organization called America Works, which is a for-profit welfare-to-work company that has created more than one million jobs. I, just, I love that. Okay, so welcome, Peter. Thank you for having me, Debbie. Oh, I'm just thrilled. I just really think this this whole concept is it's just a wonderful opportunity for Americans. How do we, both sides of the aisle, everyone 
in America, how do we do a better job at helping people who uh, have been recipients of welfare, who have been impoverished, or how do we help them inspire them? I, I always say in my show, you like inspiring them to, to get on board with the American dream, with the notion of work and self-reliance and, and the rewards that come from that. So I just want to start with asking you this book again, Poor No More. Why did you write it? Well, I wrote it because I looked back at when I started with the war on poverty in 1965. And um, that at that time, the poverty rate was about 15.5 or 15.6%. And that um, now... You do something in trying to assist a patient, and they can see that it's been harmful to the patient. They have part of their obligation, their professional and moral obligations, to stop that treatment that might hurt a patient. But we don't have a similar thing in public policy making in America with welfare. We have seen, as you mentioned a moment ago, that the welfare, the poverty rate hasn't changed much really since the war on poverty was initiated, and yet we kind of keep on doing the same things. We don't self correct. That was a brilliant insight. No, you're right. I think the word was iogenic, uh, if I remember correctly. But, uh, yeah, we, there's, there has been a built-in uh, series of impediments to uh, affecting change. Uh, the most important has been um, political, and that is that uh, it's easier to give out goodies than it is uh, to ask people to do stuff. And what we should have been asking people to do is to go to work and helping them to get there. But uh, sadly, in our country, and this has been true up through the Obama administration, uh, certainly for liberals, uh, work has been a four-letter word. And it has not been something that uh, has been that – they'll give lip service to it. We want jobs for everybody, that kind of thing. But I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, during the Obama administration, uh, we at America Works, uh, our welfare-to-work company, were placing people who were on food stamps in New York into jobs voluntarily. Uh, the, uh, the, the Obama administration came to New York City and said, you can't place people into jobs who are on food stamps. And we said, why not? They said, well, it just isn't right. It's not a good thing. Uh, well, you, you know, you look at that and you say, well, this is crazy. The people wanted to work. We were placing them in jobs that were there. They were getting out of poverty and getting off food stamps, ultimately. And they, they just didn't want people going to work. So it, 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 there's, a, there's a whole sense that, um, that by the political establishment and by the bureaucracy that in order to be benevolent, you give people things. And what we found with welfare reform was the best thing was to create jobs for people, have people go to work rather than continue to receive uh, benefits. Boy, did that work after 1996. 
Uh, I love this. And, you know, we're speaking with Peter Cove, who I might just say when I introduced you, but you have really spent the better part of your adult professional life, I don't know if it's 40 years or something, in essentially attempting in, in various ways to help to lift people out of welfare, lift people out of poverty, fighting poverty in America. So you're, you're, you're not just writing a theoretical book sitting back from the uh, you know, academic perch somewhere, but you really had a real-life experience for decades working in programs trying to help people and discovering really that the welfare programs created in America and the, um, the Great Society efforts really were not resulting in moving people to work. So, I mean, you're, you're the voice of experience here. So tell me what, tell our listeners, please, what does your organization, America Works, actually do? Uh, as a company, what we do is take people who normally would be excluded from the workforce, uh, ex-offenders, welfare recipients, uh, people with disabilities, uh, kids maxing out of the foster care system, uh, et cetera. And we act like an employment agency to move those people into jobs very quickly, uh, the difference being that once they're in the job, we support them on the job, meaning we have staff that help them with issues that could get in the way, like a, like uh, poor housing or bad transportation or not understanding the mores of the workplace or an abusive mate at home. We help out with those things so that we kind of put, I call it the static in people's lives. Uh, many of us, I'm sure, Debbie, you, me, others that are listening, have supports in our lives that would help us with those things. Many of the people we deal with do not. And so we're able to give them that access to help when needed so that they can stay in the job. And that's very important for my company because we pioneered in the United States pay for performance. We said to government, we're a for-profit company. We want you only to pay us if we deliver. Don't pay us for a program. Don't pay us for a classroom. Don't pay us for teachers or whatever. Pay us if the person gets off welfare, gets a job, and stays off welfare. Then you pay us. And that, and in order to do that, we have to give the kind of support to people so they can stay in the job. So we can't be just a dump them and run kind of company. I love all that. Another thing you mentioned in your book, and again, we're speaking with Peter Cole, who is the founder of the organization America Works and the author of the book, Poor No More. One thing you were, are talking about, I want to hone in on. You challenge the idea that part of our welfare spending in this country should involve extensive job training and that that has proved to be not effective and um, just just not the best path to pursue. But what is it you do instead? If you don't have job, why are you opposed to it? And what do you do instead? Yeah, and, and there are there are situations where job training is appropriate, but it was found to be uh, ineffective as a first strike in moving people from welfare to work. Uh, what we do uh, is over a two to four week period prepare people for how to behave in the, in, the, in the world of work, what they say, what they don't say, how to fill out an application, how to do an interview, uh, how, basically how to work. Uh, not the hard skill, it's the soft skill. And frankly, people don't lose their jobs because of what they don't know generally. It's because they don't fit in. And what we try to help people to do is to fit in and give them the support, as I indicated, that would allow them to fit in. That really makes a difference, and it really helps the company. We become a great service for companies. Uh, we're we're that kind of extra human uh, human resource professional that helps with any issues that come up with the employees that we're helping to move into those jobs. So that that really is the difference. 
I love you make that point actually in your book. You talk about the main obstacle for many welfare recipients or just unemployed people in finding work um, was not necessarily a lack of a specific skill as much as lack of professional connections. You know connections to people who have jobs and interpersonal skills. And and that just really resonated with me when you talked about that. Like you can take people who are, you know, uh, they are impoverished and they're told, here's a job you can train for and learn. But if they don't have those basic things you're describing, it's a non-starter that they will succeed. If you ask any, any line manager in a company, what are they looking for in a new employee? They'll basically tell you they're looking for somebody who will work. They want somebody who will come on Monday at 9 and leave on Friday at 5 and be there as a willing employee. Most companies will say, we'll, we'll train the person for the job. Uh, just give us somebody who really wants to work and will be there. So that's what we do. We make sure that we have people who want to work. And I'm going to tell you something. Most people who are poor, most people on welfare, most people coming out of jail, they do want to work. Uh, the, the, the problem is the access, and we give them that access and the support so that they can stay on the job. And that's really helpful to the company. That's, that's what they want. They want someone who wants to work. We know we need to go off to break pretty quickly here, but I do want to talk when we come back from our break um, about the political ramifications or side of this. You used an expression, which I want to talk about when we come back from the break. You used an expression somewhere in your book, the uh, welfare industrial complex. And obviously that's a play off of the 1961 phrase coined by Dwight Eisenhower in his farewell address when he spoke about the military industrial complex. The the combination, the force is created by a military that needs supplies and a um, an individual and organizations that produce those supplies. They put pressure in the system and create public policy that perpetuates their needs, not those of the people. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. When we come back, we'll continue talking with Peter Cove, author of Poor No More. Let me tell you about the group Vice President Mike Pence called the most effective grassroots pro-life organization in America. It's the Susan B. Anthony List, and they're the ones who are on Capitol Hill right now, day in, day out, to fight back against Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. Every day in our nation, abortion takes more than 2,000 innocent lives, almost two every single minute of every single day. And Planned Parenthood is the largest abortion business in the country, committing one-third of all abortions. It's an unspeakable tragedy and a stain upon our nation and our humanity. And it's up to us to do something about it. This is your opportunity to join the team that's leading the charge to end abortion. Go to sba-list.org or Google Susan B. Anthony List now to learn more and start saving lives today. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. 
The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org. If there's one thing the conservative movement needs, it's a leader. And we have one, the Heritage Foundation. Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Heritage gets in the trenches on Capitol Hill. They promote principled solutions directly to lawmakers in Washington. And unlike politicians, they don't waver or compromise. But they're not a Washington institution. There are nearly a half million Heritage members and supporters in America. And they're on a mission to grow that number and build the conservative base. You can become a Heritage member by going to joinheritage.org today. I've been a member of Heritage myself for years. I have Heritage experts on my show, and I rely on their analysis to get the facts out. As a member, you'll get updates from Heritage Foundation. Fight for conservative solutions to America's challenges. Plus, you'll receive exclusive invitations to conservative events. Where so join the growing movement. Find out more at joinheritage.org. That's joinheritage.org. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility, when politicians propose solutions, to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. And welcome back to America Can We Talk. I love doing my show, and I love that you've tuned in. Thank you so much. We're continuing our conversation tonight with Peter Cove, author of Poor No More, and also founder uh, of the organization called America Works. And the reason I'm all enthused about this idea is this. You know, everyone in America cares about the fact that we have too many people unemployed, too many people uh, living in a cycle of poverty and cycle of welfare, being welfare recipients. And um, there's just a need to um, be, I, I want the economy and our kind of our political conversation re-inspired with the idea that we are all better off, and I think people know this, but we're all better off trying to find ways to bring people out of welfare and out of dependency and into actually uh, working. And, you know, you, you had a little segment in your book um, which talked about the very the many benefits of working. And I want to, before we get to talking about the political aspect of it all, I love that you acknowledge this because these are these things have actually been acknowledged also by the guy who's had America, Arthur Brooks, had made these same points about when people work, the great benefit to people of work. And you mentioned uh, several of them. Do you, do you remember what I'm talking about, Peter? Of course. Okay, no, so it, what's so great about working? I'm sorry? What's so great about working? Well, no, Coward said work is more fun than fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's right. Uh, but let me be more serious. Um in 1983, I believe, Pope John Paul II wrote an encyclical on, uh, on work. And in that encyclical, if I remember 
correctly. I'm, I'm kind of paraphrasing. He said, if you deny a man work, you deny them part of their spirituality. So it's not just an economic issue. It has to do with self-worth. It has to do with who you are first to yourself, to your family, to your friends, to the, to the community, to the country. Who are you? And work helps to define that. And go and no matter what the job is, it absolutely, it doesn't matter. It defines you as a human being in society. And you know that. And people know that. And one of the things I've found with over the million people that we place through America Works and other companies I've worked with, uh, people want to work. Uh, the, 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 the old canard that... Uh, uh, people on welfare are lazy and they don't want to work. It, it was proven totally untrue by the welfare reform in the United States. But I can just tell you from daily work it, 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 in, in my company, uh, people do want to work. And you made a point earlier um, in the first second, segment, and I want to I go back to it. I, I want your uh, listeners to understand I'm not an academic. What they're hearing from me comes from experience. Um, I take as, 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 a, as a maxim something I, I read in a book by uh, Abraham Joshua Heschel, a very famous uh, uh, rabbi, and he said, see not what you know, know what you see. And that's been true in my life. I try to see not what I already know, but to look at what I'm facing and what's really in front of me. And that's what your listeners are hearing. What I've been through over 50 years of working with poverty programs comes from what I saw. And people want to argue with me that can argue, rightfully so, but they're going to have to come up against a lot of reality. I, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, your, your comment, I did find the page on my many stickies in this book, and uh, you talked about the various benefits of working. And I do want to turn to some political aspects in a moment, but just that notion of the joy and privilege of working. You know, you know it in your heart, even little things. I always make this analogy, but you know when you take the time to actually clean out the whole pantry, and you get it all clean, you wipe it all down, you organize it. It's like I want my family to have to go by, look look at the pantry. I did that. It's just, yeah, yes, exactly. it, it's the joy of success. Yes. No, you're, you're, absolutely, you're absolutely right. It is a sense of, of accomplishment. It's a sense of, of, of being alive. Yep. And, and, yeah, and, and you matter in life. Okay, so turning to your efforts to uh, inspire people in the political scene, uh, political side of things, to embrace this idea of America works. Yeah, I said before the break that you made a reference to this, uh, an analogy to the welfare industrial complex that President Eisenhower introduced that term in his 1961 uh, farewell address. So what is the, in this context, what is the welfare industrial complex? Well, it, and, and I, I do coin the term, uh, and it is from uh, off of uh, President Eisenhower's uh, industrial complex, uh, military industrial complex. Uh, what is it? It's a combination of political uh, politicians, of people running programs uh, to help uh, poor people, uh, of the bureaucracy. Uh, it, it, it is anybody who has uh, financial or political from keeping the game going. And let me give you an example. I want to give you one just here's a political example. Uh, a woman who ran the welfare committee at the state level in New York came to visit my program a, a long while ago. Uh, and uh, after she saw the Welfare to Work program America Works was running in New York City, I said, what do you think of it? And she said, I think it's the best Welfare to Work program I've ever seen. 
I said, are you going to support it? And she said, no. <laughs> and I said, why? She said, well, uh, you see, there's a, there's a little YWCA down the street from me, from my campaign office. And they have a welfare-to-work program. It's not as big as yours, and it's not as uh, good as yours, Peter. But on Election Day, they bring out the votes. That's a part of the welfare-industrial complex. It's, it's people who benefit from keeping and that game uh, I want to put an end to. I love that analogy. And, you know, the military-industrial complex, you know, the manufacturers of military equipment want to have give people jobs, so they want to have a lot of orders. So the military, they want the military to make those orders. And so people in Congress can see they're keeping the military happy, the manufacturers happy, so they keep on. So that perpetuates uh, manufacturing and and ends up really dictating policy. And what your your analogy is so brilliant, because I do think that there are politicians, and they didn't perhaps start out with a mean-spirited goal of just, let me spend a bunch of taxpayer dollars on ineffective programs, but the programs have been in place, really, since the Great Society began, and they employ people, and they bring voters, and I, I, you know, I've said this in context where it wasn't very popular, but I do think some element of the American left simply uh, relies on the dependency class they have as their built-in, absolutely reliable voters. Do you agree with that? Uh, not only do I agree with it, uh, it I second it. It is, it is absolutely correct. Um, it's one of the reasons, <clears throat> excuse me, that I uh, thought to do pay-for-performance contracts because to government, and they were resistant at the beginning, and they still are somewhat resistant. I said, don't pay me for a program. Pay me gift. Isn't that what you do with Boeing when they sell you an airplane? You wouldn't pay them for a hundred airplanes if they only sent you fifty. That's what they were doing in my in my business. And so I said, pay me when a person gets off welfare, gets a job, and is in a job for a period of time. Then you pay me. Isn't that what we all want? Now, what that does is it, it changes the game, and the and the, the the industrial complex has a much harder time. Uh, succeeding because the bad programs uh, uh, fall away and and the good ones remain and get expanded. And therefore, they can't just support programs because they bring out votes. So what I like about pay-for-performance, and it's what we fought for, is I think it helps to change the game of the welfare-industrial complex. You know, I'm Greg here is uh, giving me signals because this this show always races by every two hours. And I guess we have like two and a half minutes, but I wanted to hit a really big point. You advocated in your book essentially for abolishing all cash welfare as well as food and housing assistance except for the elderly and mentally and physically disabled as a means to move America from dependent from a dependency culture to one of full employment. Uh, can you just, and I'm sorry we have two minutes left, can you kind of summarize what your goal is there? Yes. Uh, uh, what I want to do is I want to take money that's being spent uh, to keep people home and to keep people out of the workplace and create jobs with that money. So I want to take the money being spent on welfare, except as you indicated for the elderly and people who are mentally and physically incapable of going to work. I want to take all the money for the poverty programs because we've spent $22 trillion uh, since 1965 and it hasn't succeeded. And I want to take that money and create jobs for people in the private sector, and if there aren't enough there, in the public sector. So you say to a woman who's had a baby and would come normally to the government for support, no, but we have daycare and we have a job for you. That's what I want to do. I want to, I want to take the money that's helping people to stay home 
help them to go to work. And one last thing that we really are, I'm sorry to say, running up the end of our clock, but you were involved, actually, I was, I was thrilled to read in your book that you were actually involved in uh, the Clinton administration giving testimony, advocating for the change in legislation that brought about the Welfare Reform Bill of, I think, 1996, right? 1996? That's correct. Okay. That's correct. So, I, you know, I, again, I'm going to loop back to what I started with. You are a person um, advocating from a base of knowledge, uh, obviously a heart full of compassion for low-income Americans and those living in dependency, and really advocating for something that breaks down the unhealthy um, system we have had, which is perpetuate dependency and perpetuate the um, political power of people who fund those dependency programs and bringing Americans back to the the, uh, almost basic American kind of a founding value, self-reliant support for yourself. So, Peter Cove, I commend you. I think your book is simply fabulous. Again, folks, Peter Cove, Poor No More, Rethinking Dependency in the War on Poverty. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me, Debbie. It's a pleasure. And so thanks very much, folks. Come back right back after the break for America Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. Don't go away. On August 2nd, 2006, Debbie Lee was notified that her son, Mark Allen Lee, had been killed, becoming the first Navy SEAL to lose his life in Iraq. She had no choice about the news that was given to her, but she did have a choice how she responded. In response to her son's amazing last letter, she founded America's Mighty Warriors to honor the sacrifices of our troops, the fallen, and their families by providing programs that improve quality of life, resiliency, and recovery. Whether America's Mighty Warriors is hosting retreats for families of the fallen, helping heroes heal who are struggling with traumatic brain injury or post-traumatic stress disorder, providing relaxation at the Heroes Hope Home, stepping in when an injustice is committed, or doing random acts of kindness. As Mark mentioned in his letter, they know the price of freedom and who pays it. Our troops and families of the fallen need your support. Visit americasmightywarriors.org today to learn more. That's americasmightywarriors.org. Attention Ronald Reagan fans. What is the one item most sought after by Americans who love the Gipper? It's Young America's Foundation's Reagan Ranch Calendar. Young America's Foundation is the leading youth outreach organization dedicated to ensuring that increasing numbers of young Americans understand and are inspired by the ideas of individual freedom, a strong national defense, free enterprise, and traditional values. New audiences of young people across the country are introduced to conservative ideas through Young America's Foundation's programs, including the Reagan Ranch Program. The Reagan Ranch calendar contains spectacular images of the Gipper enjoying his beautiful 688-acre ranch, the Western White House. For a limited time, the calendar is free. Even shipping is free. To receive your beautiful Reagan Ranch calendar from Young America's Foundation, call 800-USA-1776 and mention the phrase Reagan Gift. Again, the number is 1-800-USA-1776 and Reagan Gift is the code. Learn more about Young America's Foundation at www.yaf.org. That's yaf.org. Do you know that one in nearly five United States residents lives in an immigrant household? That we take in more than one million new legal immigrants every year? Studying the impact of federal immigration program is the mission of the Center for Immigration Studies, the nation's only think tank looking at the broad national effect of immigration policy. 
Whether it's on crime, welfare, national security, or the job market, CIS digs out information about immigration from government sources, translates it into English, and makes it available to the public, the news media, and policymakers in Washington. Check out its work at CIS.org. CIS makes the case for better enforcement against illegal immigration and lower levels of legal immigration in the future. Most other special interest groups pursue the opposite. The only thing standing between them and open borders is an informed public. Get informed and stay informed by visiting CIS.org. That's CIS.org. Hi, this is Debbie Georgiatis. On my radio show, we have the theme music by Krista Branch that has the refrain, I am America. I chose it because it summarizes what I think is a really important truth about America. We the people are America. We the people are blessed with extraordinary power in our country, and we have to use that power to keep America strong and free for everyone. And how do we do that? We have the responsibility to understand the issues facing our country, to get beyond soundbite and slogan politics. We have the responsibility when politicians propose solutions to understand, will those solutions preserve American-style freedom or slowly, incrementally destroy it? We have to vote once we are informed about the issues. But even more so, we have to speak up to our friends, our family members, to speak up in our daily life about the reality that we each have a responsibility and privilege to defend American-style freedom. This is Debbie Georgiatis on America Can We Talk. Welcome back to America Can We Talk. As I say almost every week, this is the fastest two hours every single week of my, it's just the fastest two hours. I cannot believe we're at the final segment. And you know, I always, I need to take a moment before we get to the end of the show to thank the sponsor of our show. America Can We Talk is sponsored by GC Works. GC Works is a Dallas-based company that performs research in advanced technology and delivers innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. Could not do the show without them. So very grateful. I also want to thank again the team that's allowing me to do this show from Oxnard, California, instead of um, Irving, Texas. So thanks again to Greg and Kevin. And then I was also thinking on the break, you know, we've started about, I don't know when it was, six months ago, we started doing, putting the show out on Facebook Live. And I really, it's, it's a little bit hard. I, I need two of me in the studio because I'm, I'm pushing buttons and controlling things, but I'm also realizing people are commenting. I love that you're commenting on Facebook Live. I want to thank you. One of the comments uh, from my new friend in Scottsdale because um, <laughs> was uh, about the notion that, you know, if we remove these Confederate statues, which is what gave rise to the protests in Charlottesville, Virginia, you know, are we taking away a teachable opportunity, you know, when, I mean, those statues are there for generations. And so people say, well, who was this guy and why is, what was the Confederacy? And we, we have those as emblems to talk about, to, as examples, like, well, you know, it wasn't a good thing, but is our history? Here's what it is. And, you know, we just, um, it ties into a larger point I wanted to make about this show. I always have enough topics ready in case, like, there's a snowstorm or something and I'm, I'm stuck for hours and hours on air. I have enough material to talk about, but I did each week. I try to think about a little, I mean, there isn't always a theme, but sometimes there is. I was thinking this week about how, you know, the combination of our interview with Patrice and Luca in which she was talking about, you know, what will really help young black women who are entrepreneurial, who are trying to build a business and, and, you know, help them get ahead. Is it just government mandates of, you know, 
childcare being provided, uh, increasing minimum wage, all sorts of regulatory things, or is it inspiring them to think through how is it you make more money? What kinds of businesses pay more? So you encourage them at young ages to pursue careers that the free market naturally provides more compensation. They're going to be paid more because it's that kind of job. And so she was really, uh, I mean, touched on two kind of themes that tonight. One was that, was just that we don't need government programs to do everything. It was also just so important to recognize she is a, as I tell you, beside being brilliant, she's eloquent, she's thoughtful, and she's a, a black conservative who speaks out, which is a very hard thing to do. And I really want to encourage, you know, our listeners, we always, you know, and the conservative side, we're always lamenting that somehow the minority vote goes overwhelmingly to the Democrats. And, you know, it's an interesting thing because that's true, but it's also true that we have many opportunities on the conservative side to point out, look, our answers work. They work for everyone. What Patrice is talking about, it happens to focus on, because there was a coverage of this statistic that talked about the, um, you know, the, low in- the relatively lower income uh, earned by women who are black entrepreneurs, uh, single women who are entrepreneurs. But it really was a larger question of, you know, free markets work and free markets work for everyone. And Patrice is an outspoken person, a black conservative who is speaking out against the backdrop of not just that most you know, statistics will tell you that blacks vote conservative, uh, blacks, blacks vote liberally, but against the backdrop of so many in the American, and I always call them the left-wing media mob, who cannot stand to let a conservative black voice come out. So we talked about Larry Elder, and he was trying to make the point about these prominent, and frankly, he should be on the list too, Larry Elder, but the people he spoke of, Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court Justice, Dr. Thomas Sowell has written, I think it was like over two dozen books or something like that, four dozen books. The guy's prolific writer, profound thinker, you know, Walter Williams, another PhD in economics, no acknowledgement from the American left because their views don't count because they're black conservatives, so we don't pay attention to that. So I like to see these stories, and I hit Google in a second too again, but I like to see these stories as opportunities for conservatives to message better, to speak up, to say, to tell our story. We actually judge you in the way Martin Luther King said was the right way, not based on the color of your skin, but instead on the content of your character, on the effort in which you want to put into your career, on the on the wisdom you bring and the hard work you bring. We are actually We should be able as conservatives to press that message more and more and more as we go forward because we really are in a place where the liberal ideas that have, and I'm tying in Peter Cove here, Peter Cove is pointing out, a former liberal, by the way, huge liberal, became a conservative. And he became a conservative because he recognized that all the liberal programs that he worked for over 40 years implementing did not rescue people out of poverty. If you actually care about the poor, you don't just care to try to get more government programs to spend more money to give more people free things. You actually love and respect the individual and the human spirit, the desire to work and achieve and be self-sufficient. Peter Goh's story was about his own life, but it's about the organization he created, America Works, that is really inspiring people to discover, I can be self-sufficient. I can actually do a job. 
and get a paycheck and take care of myself. That's an enormously consequential step of growth, especially for people who've had struggles in life. Again, the conservative answers, turn to the individual, inspire the individual, reward the individual, encourage him or her to find their path, find their way, find their place in the American dream and in our economy. So Peter Cove's message is one that really dovetails well, actually, with the Google message, the Google story tonight. Okay, I didn't plan this, I swear. I, I pulled these stories. I always end up the day before the show having to throw away, you know, nine-tenths of the stories I want to talk about because I only have two hours for now. I only have two hours a day. I want two hours a week, as I have mentioned many, many times. But I have to put stories aside, but these kind of all gelled to me together. Even the Google story, what Google is saying, and, you know, Google's not the government, but it's, a, it's just the, it is the epitome of left-wing thinking in this country. What the Google story is really saying is you're not allowed to think outside the bounds that left-wing thought says you can think. You cannot challenge the premise that the entire reason for a lower percentage of women who are working in tech industries, you, you can't challenge the left-wing, you know, Bible gospel truth that the only reason those small numbers are there is because of discrimination in society. That we have a, a horrible country that discriminates against women. We have gender disparities. We have to fix it through affirmative action style programs. Even within Google, they are affirmative action type programs. And this guy who came along, who's a lefty that they fired, he just said, could we reconsider the question of whether or not perhaps some differences between men and women contribute to some degree to the gender disparity? And he's out of a job. And he's mocked and ridiculed by the president of Google. So I'm telling you, folks, the, 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 the feeling of the right, it's not, it's not it's, it's a feeling in a way, but it's kind of the core ideas of conservatism are really what meets the need of people in America far more than the rigid left-wing, viewpoint-intolerant, you know, racially-pegged, hyphenated America. We have better ideas to offer on the right, but we have to be able to offer them, offer them bravely, speak up, say them again, challenge the left-wing stranglehold on the media, and bring our ideas out more and more, and our guest tonight really kind of all did that, and both did that, Peter Cove and Patrice Anwuka. Okay, so now I only have, I don't know, I lose track of time here. I think I have like four minutes before, three minutes. This pesky voice in my ear said three minutes. Okay, I won't, okay, fine. Okay, but I do want to turn, and you know, tonight it was a huge story, and I had actually started the show prep thinking about talking about North Korea and, you know, that whole unbelievable situation we're facing. And I can't get into it much tonight, but I do want to, and I will next week, but I just want to plant a couple of seeds about uh, what's happening with North Korea. I mean, I see people, I'm on Facebook all the time. Yeah, you know, personal Facebook page, Debbie Georgiatis, my my uh, website, my radio show, Facebook page, America Can We Talk. I'm on Twitter, at Debbie Can We Talk, at Debbie Can We Talk. Follow me on Twitter. I love, I'll follow you right back. Um, but I want to, you know, this whole North Korea thing, there's so much talk about, oh, my gosh, I'm so afraid. Donald Trump's in charge, and I don't know what he's like. He might do something crazy, blah, blah. Let me tell you what crazy is, okay? Crazy is when Bill Clinton told us, and I quote back in 1996, Bill Clinton, I'm sorry, 1994, this is his statement, Bill Clinton, 1994. Before I take your questions, I'd like to say just a word about the framework with North Korea. That blah, blah, blah. It's a good deal for the U.S. North Korea will freeze and then dismantle its nuclear program. 
South Korea and its other allies, you better protect it, blah, blah. This is going to protect the world. North Korea's promised it's just going to use this to allow, they're going to use the energy they're receiving to produce electricity and make it, and this deal that Clinton stuck, struck with the North Koreans in 1994 will just simply allow North Korea to make energy for their people. Fast forward, as you, as we all know by now, North Korea, very similar to what Iran is doing in this idiot deal that Obama made with Iran, North Korea now has nuclear weapons. We actually had the American, um, I don't know what agency it was, by summer of 2002, the CIA announced that they had evidence that the um, North Koreans were secretly pursuing uranium enrichment. Okay, so, you know, they're just ignoring this deal they made with Clinton. Uh, By December 2002, they are restarting their plutonium program, direct violation of the deal. Obviously, now we're in a dangerous situation. The other really important point to understand about this North Korean situation is this. The Defense Intelligence Agency announced this past week that they determined that North Korea is capable of constructing miniaturized nuclear weapons that could be used as warheads for missiles, possibly ICBMs. And, and so it's a big fear because all of a sudden North Korea has something, a missile they can send to us, an ICBM. People think, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. How could this be? Okay, understand this. Fred Flights, frequent guest on this show, brilliant guy with the Center for Security Policy, points out that actually this discovery was made under President Obama. Obama knew about this as of 2013, but he didn't want to deal with it because he did not want to deal with having to actually stand up for America. He did not want to deal with it to actually get tough on an enemy, so he buried the news, didn't deal with it, didn't challenge, let it go. So now we're in the situation where North Korea is now a very dangerous enemy, and President Trump is the one, got the votes at the U.N. Security Council, 15 to 0, to shut down North Korea, at least with respect, as far as they can through sanctions. This is what President Trump did. I'd say with President Trump, we're doing better. Okay, folks, uh, I believe the end of our time is near, even though I could talk a whole lot longer. I want to thank you for tuning in every week to America Can We Talk. We always talk truth about America. Thank you for listening to America Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to americacanwetalk.org. America Can We Talk truth about America.